are listening to Talk Geek to Me News number 59, recorded for February the 8th, 2012. You are listening to the Tech Only Hacker Public Radio Edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeektome.us. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek Talk Geek to me. And now the tech roundup. Dated January 20th, 2012, from EFF.org. ACLU and EFF to appeal secrecy ruling in Twitter WikiLeaks case. Richmond, Virginia. Fighting to make public government efforts to obtain Internet users' private information without a warrant, today the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, plan to file an appeal in the legal battle over the records of several Twitter users in connection with the government's WikiLeaks investigation. The ACLU and EFF represent Icelandic Parliament member Birgitta Hans Datir. The appeal filed jointly with other Twitter users, Jacob Applebaum and Rob Gongrip, and challenges U.S. District Court Liam O'Grady's November decision refusing to unseal or publicly list all orders that may have been sent to companies other than Twitter and any related motions and court orders. Quote, These people want to try to protect their privacy and their First Amendment rights, and the government should not be able to prevent that by hiding court records. Our courts are public. Secret court orders and secret court dockets should not be permitted except in extraordinary circumstances, said Aidan Fine, staff attorney with the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. This case is just one example of the unfortunate recent trend to make our court processes less open and transparent. In light of the district court's denial of stay, Hans Dottier and the other Twitter users involved in the case did not appeal the judge's decision requiring Twitter to turn over their records. Attorneys for Hans Dottier and Fine of the ACLU, Rebecca Glenberg of the ACLU of Virginia and Cindy Cohen, Lee Tian, and Marcia Hoffman of EFF. The motions were joined by attorneys from the law firm Kecker and Van Nest LLP and the law office of John D. Klein on behalf of Jacob Applebaum and Ron Gangship, respectively as well as local counsel in Virginia. Editorial comment after the ruling, the Icelandic Member of Parliament, Ms. Birgitta Hansdottir, broke silence on the matter of this case, so I included in the other headlines section links to her blog entry about it, as well as a link to a Radio Netherlands International English podcast that includes an interview with her. From EFF.org, dated January 28, 2012, by Gillian C. Ork, The right to an anonymity is a matter of privacy. Throughout history, there have been a number of reasons why individuals have taken to writing or producing art under a pseudonym. In the 18th century, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay took on the pseudonym Publius to publish the Federalist Papers. In 19th century England, pseudonyms allowed women, like the Bronze Sisters, who initially published under Currer, Ellis, and Acton Bell, to be taken seriously as writers. 
Today, pseudonyms continue to serve a range of individuals and for a variety of reasons. At EFF, we view anonymity as both a matter of free speech and privacy, but in light of the International Privacy Day, January 28th, this piece will focus mainly on the later, including at the ways in which the right to anonymity or pseudonymity is truly a matter of privacy. Human beings are complex creatures with multiple interests. As such, many professionals use pseudonyms online to keep their employment separate from their personal life. One example of this is the Guardian columnist Girl Scientist, spelled G-R-R-L, who, upon discovering her Google Plus account had been deleted for violating their common name policy, penned a piece explaining her need for privacy. Another example is prominent Moroccan blogger Hisham Kribchi, who has explained his use of a pseudonym, stating, quote, When I first started blogging, I wanted my identity to remain secret because I didn't want my online activity to interfere with my professional life. I want to keep both as separate as possible. I also want to use a fake name because I wrote about politics, and I was critical of my own government. A pseudonym would shield me and my family from personal attacks. I want to have a comfortable space to express myself freely without having to worry about the police when I visit my family back in Morocco. Unquote. Although Kripchi's reasoning is twofold, his primary concern, even stronger than his need for protection from his government, was keeping his online life separate from his employment. Even while Ghanem, the now famous Egyptian who helped launch a revolution, conducted his activism under a pseudonym, not to protect himself from the Egyptian government, but rather because he was an employee of Google and wanted to maintain an air of neutrality. In 2008, an Alaskan blogger known as Alaska Muckraker, or AKM, rose to fame for her vocal criticism of fellow Alaskan and then-McCain running mate Sarah Palin. Later, after inveighing against a rude email sent to constituents by Alaska State Representative Mike Dugan, AKM was outed by Dugan, who wrote, that his, quote, own theory about public process is you can say what you want as long as you are willing to stand behind it using your real name, unquote. AKM, a blogger decidedly committing an act of journalism, could have had any number of reasons to remain anonymous. As she later wrote, quote, I might be a state employee. I might not want my children to get grief at school. I might be fleeing from an ex-partner who was abusive and would rather he not know where I am. My family might not want to talk to me anymore. I might alienate my best friend. Maybe I don't feel like having a brick thrown through my window. Maybe my spouse might work for the Palin administration. Maybe I'd rather people not know where I live or where I work. Or none of those things may be true. None of my readers, nor Mike Dugan, had any idea what my personal circumstances might be. Unquote. Though Dugan claimed that AKM gave up her right to anonymity when her blog began influencing public policy, he's wrong. In the United States, the right to anonymity is protected by the First Amendment and must remain so, to ensure both the free expression and privacy rights of citizens. Similarly, in 2009, Ed Whelans, a former official with the Department of Justice, outed anonymous blogger John Blevins, a professor at the South Texas College of Law, in the National Review calling him irresponsible and a coward. Blevins took the fall gracefully, later explaining why he had chosen to blog under a pseudonym. Unlike Kripchi, 
Blevins' reasons were numerous. He feared losing tenure and legal clients, but he also feared putting the jobs of family members in the political space at risk. A friend of mine, let's call him Joe, is the sibling of a famous celebrity, but while he's very proud of his sibling, Joe learned early on that not everyone has his best interests at heart. Therefore, Joe devised a pseudonym to use online in order to protect the privacy of himself and his family. In Joe's case, the threat is very real. Celebrities are regularly stalked, their houses broken into, his pseudonym keeps him feeling normal in his online interactions while simultaneously protecting his sibling and the rest of his family from invasions of privacy. Anonymity and pseudonymity may seem increasingly difficult to achieve online. Not only do companies like Facebook restrict your right to use a pseudonym, but even when you do think you're anonymous, you might not be, as blogger Rosemary Port found in 2009 after Google turned over her name in response to a court order. While we should continue to fight for our privacy under the law, the best thing we can do as users who value their right to anonymity is to use tools like Tor. Anonymous bloggers can use Global Voices Advocacy's online guide to blogging anonymously with WordPress and Tor, and all Internet users should educate themselves about what is and isn't private on their online accounts and profiles. From torrentfreak.com by Enigmix, dated January 20th, 2012. Mega Upload. What made it a rogue site worthy of destruction? File hosting services all around the world will have looked on in horror yesterday as Mega Upload, one of the world's largest cyber locker services, was taken apart by the FBI. Foreign citizens were arrested in foreign lands and at least $50 million in assets seized. So what exactly prompted this action? Torrent Freak read every word of the 72-page indictment so you don't have to, and we were surprised by its contents. Yesterday, a massive operation took down Mega Upload, one of the world's leading file storage services and one of the world's biggest sites, period. While the timing came as a huge post-SOPA protest surprise, the fact that the site was targeted was not. For many months, there have been rumblings behind the scenes that something might be done about Mega Upload. Nevertheless, the manner in which the action was taken and the language used by the authorities in doing so was utterly unprecedented. So the key question this morning is this. What made Mega Upload a rogue site which deserved to be completely dismantled and its key staff arrested? The answers lie in the 72-page indictment and show just how the authorities, with the massive assistance of the MPAA, no doubt, framed Mega's activities in such a way as to strip it of any protection under the DMCA. In the U.S., online service providers are eligible for safe harbor under the DMCA from copyright infringement suits by meeting certain criteria. However, the indictment states that a member of the mega conspiracy, capital M, capital C, no less, do not meet these criteria because, quote, they are willfully infringing copyrights themselves on these systems, have actual knowledge that the materials on their systems are infringing, or alternatively know facts or circumstances that would make infringing material apparent, receive a financial benefit directly attributable to copyright infringing activity where the provider can control that activity and have not removed or disabled access to known copyright infringing material from service they control. End quote. 
Let's cover the last point first, the apparently non-removal of known copyright material from Mega Upload servers. First, a little background on how Mega Upload's user uploading system worked, because this is absolutely crucial to the case against the site. Mega had developed a system whereby files set to be uploaded by users were hashed in order to discover if a copy of the file already exists on the Mega servers. If a file existed, the user did not have to upload his copy and was simply given a unique URL in order to access the content in future. What this meant in practice is that there could be countless URLs owned by various users but which all pointed to the same file. Mega Upload's abuse tool to which major copyright holders were given access enabled the removal of links to infringing works hosted on Mega Upload servers. However, the indictment claims that it, quote, did not actually function as DMCA compliance tool as the copyright owners were led to believe, unquote, and here's why. The indictment claims that when a copyright holder issued a takedown notice for content referenced by its URL, only the URL was taken down, not the content to which it pointed. So although the URL in question would report that it had been removed and would no longer resolve to infringing material, URLs issued to others would remain operational. Furthermore, the indictment states that although Mega Upload staff, referred to as members of the conspiracy, discussed how they could automatically remove child pornography from their systems given a specific hash value, the same standards weren't applied to complaint about copyright works. In June 2010, it appears that Mega Upload was subjected to something of a test by the authorities. The company was informed pursuant to a criminal search warrant from the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia that 39 infringing movies were being stored on their service in Carpathia hosting in the Eastern District of Virginia. Quote, a member of the mega conspiracy informed several of his co-conspirators at that time that he located the named files using internal searches of their system. As of November 18, 2011, more than a year later, 36 of the 39 infringing motion pictures were still being stored on the service controlled by the mega conspiracy. Unquote. The indictment reads, The paperwork goes on to accuse Mega Upload of running a program between September 2005 and July 2011, which rewarded users for uploading infringing material. A citation from an internal Mega Upload email from February 2007 titled Reward Payments claims to show that at least two key staff members knew that cash payments were being paid to users who uploaded infringing material, including, quote, full popular DVD rips, unquote, and software with key generators, wares, unquote. Then the indictment starts to throw up some very interesting questions, especially how the authorities managed to get hold of not just one, but many of Mega Upload's internal company emails, dating back to 2006, to use in the case against them. It's certainly possible that the authorities were monitoring Mega Upload's correspondence, but there are also at least two mentions in the indictment of an unnamed person described as, quote, an unindicted co-conspirator, unquote. While prosecutors sometimes use this term to describe people who have been excluded from an indictment on evidentiary concerns, they also use it to describe individuals who have been granted immunity from prosecution. In any case, these emails are being heavily relied upon since many appear to indicate knowledge among staff that copyright works were held on the company's servers. Here's a sample. An email from 2006 claims to show how Mega Upload attempted to download large amounts of content from YouTube 
and appeared by April that year to have obtained 30% of the site's content. A follow-up email in 2007 claimed that, quote, Kim Mega Uploads founder really wants to copy YouTube one-to-one, unquote. To read the rest of the samples of the email correspondence between internal um, staffers of Mega Upload, you may read the full article at the show notes. However, later on in the article, in one email, Kim.com reportedly said, This is a serious threat to our business. Please look into this and see how we can protect ourselves. Adding, should we move our domain to another country, Canada, or even Hong Kong? The indictment separately lists several movies being distributed from Mega Upload servers in the United States, all of which were not yet commercially available. There is no indication, however, that Mega Upload's operators knew they were there. On face value, it would seem that in a handful of cited instances, staff at the company did indeed link each other to copyright works, but when the massive scale of the Mega Upload operation is set besides them, their significance is put into a different perspective. The issue of not taking down content is a fascinating one. Mega Upload is not on its own when it hashes content and allows users to access already stored versions of the same files. Nevertheless, will taking down a specific URL and not the content itself be enough to appease the courts? Finally, and despite the assertions of the MPAA, RIAA, and the authorities, Mega Upload carried a huge amount of non-infringing content, giving the service itself substantial non-infringing users. Nevertheless, all content has now been seized, leaving millions of people and companies without their personal data. CyberLocker services and potential startups all around the world will be watching this case like hawks. Seismic doesn't really come close. Editorial comment, there has been a lot of coverage of the Mega Upload case, both on Torrent Freak, TechDirt.com, and Oz Technica. I suggest you follow this case as much as I will be following it. However, I can't read everything into these podcasts. So you may want to follow articles, follow links, do searches of the three aforementioned sites on your own. However, it is fascinating how the illegals operated. Mega Upload had both people legally operating and illegal operating, and now uh, because of the rap musicians who have historically been shortchanged by the big record labels, the big name ones were moving their content to Mega Upload and getting paid as they were automatically major sources of downloads and advertising revenues. So the deal offered to from Mega Upload to rap artists who were famous was better than the deal offered by the RIAA and Kim.com in his last guest article written for TorrentFreak.com said that he found a way to pay them 90% of the time regardless of whether or not the download is paid preceded this attack. Whether or not you want to believe that the FBI is merely acting for their bosses, the RIA and MPAA, or not, I submit that for your consideration. But I do want to turn now to another mega upload article that details how the illegals operated, as I found the patterns fascinated. And then finally, to end out the tech segment, I will read about a foreign social networking site to give an example of how people are reacting to the United States of America's fascist and heavy-handed attitude toward the Internet.
So, without further ado, from torrentfreak.com, dated January 28, 2012, by Enigmex, Mega Aftermath, Upheaval in Pirate Warrior's Land. While last week's shutdown of Mega Upload is of huge interest in itself, but a wave of aftershocks and side effects all proving equally fascinating to watch, in addition to causing all sorts of problems for legitimate users of file sharing services, there is no avoiding the fact that certain elements of the piracy scene are in a mess. Amazingly, still, the beat goes on. Despite its rogue site's status and various other warnings, when Mega Upload went down last week, it still came as a shock. But what came next was unprecedented, a dramatic reaction in CyberLocker land that took out vast libraries of digital content and capacity. The perception of the established ground rules had been changed without passing of a single new law. FBI, arrest by huge numbers of police, enormous cash and asset seizures overseas, reward program scrutiny, knowledge of payouts to persistent uploaders of infringing content, extradition, these are things that change the game. Quote, if the U.S. government can come for Kim.com, it can happen to almost anyone, unquote, a file hosting operator told Torrent Freak on condition of anonymity. I'm trying to think of everything I did possibly wrong in the last three years and worrying about that and the next three years also, if we even have that long. For many hosting sites, it was time to react quickly. Earlier this week, we documented the drastic actions taken by services such as FileSonic and FileServe, who shut down all third-party sharing and, like many others, closed down their affiliate payout programs. Later, we showed how file-hosting competitors such as ForShared, RapidShare, and HotFile had grown as users hunted for spare capacity. In the space of a week and the mega-upload shutdown aside, Huge libraries of both legitimate and pirated material were wiped out as file host after file host deleted an impossible to calculate number of files and closed down thousands of suspected infringing accounts. And this is where it gets quite interesting. For more than half a decade, Hollywood and the recording industry have spent millions of dollars, not so much on actually eliminating illegal content, but getting rid of links to content, such as those found on BitTorrent. But this week, Without a single cease and desist being sent, cyberlockers across the globe not only self-deleted vast quantities of files, but in doing so made millions of links across thousands of linking sites completely useless too. For the operators of these linking sites and their uploaders, this week has been a very hard work indeed. For some sites it was all too much, and the shutters have simply come down. The problem, it seems, is money. While there is money to be made in torrent sites, the content shares there are largely altruistic. The cyberlocker scene is more complex and incestuous, with revenue being generated in a handful of basic ways on both legal and illegal content. Through reward programs, uploaders get paid on the number of times people subsequently download content. Equally, release sites can upload the content themselves and get paid like a regular uploader when people download. Reward programs are important for cyberlockers, too, since they attract customers away from competitors and also give them an incentive to supply content. Release sites and wares forums send users to cyberlockers to get content, and when they get there, they are faced with a choice. Download a little, relatively slowly but for free, 
or pay for a premium account and get lots as quickly as possible. In many cases, choosing the first option means that cyberlockers also make more money from advertising. While various sites shut their rewards programs this week, those uploading purely for the money were hit hard. In fact, many who had cash mounting up in their accounts lost it all. Some cyberlockers simply kept the accrued money while the victims were livid. Those who hate financially motivated sharing commented that justice had been served. But while it's clear that some uploaders, often young and in less well-off countries, are sharing small time for a few bucks, for some the reward payouts are more important. For many release sites, those rewards pay the server bills. Quote, we needed the payout, and when file host name redacted on request, shut down sharing, we were all but finished, unquote, one admin of a release site told Torrent Freak. Quote, 90% of our content was hosted there. Then they deleted all our files and closed the account. They won't even speak with us about it. A whole year's work gone. We shut at the end of the month, unquote. But, like worker ants whose nest has just been smashed apart by angry humans, others are utterly unfazed and just want to know which hosts are still paying out. Despite the climate of fear, quite a few hosts say they are, and it's evident from the links being posted on release blogs, that the Upload for Cash crew have noticed them quickly. Things, however, are still in a state of flux. Some of the file hosts still paying out appear to be offering tiered reward systems, with just about every country in the world getting a reasonable deal, but with the United States right at the very bottom. Another interesting rumor, which at the time of writing we have been unable to confirm, is that one of the file hosts who banned third-party downloads earlier this week is now re-enabling them. This is something to look out for. Without third-party links being operational, users are extremely unlikely to sign up for a premium account, and this is where the cyber lockers can make good money. So finally, one has to ask whether the mega-upload shutdown has damaged the Internet piracy infrastructure. Providing an answer is not easy. The amount of material coming online has not really reduced. Content feeding from the scene is business as usual. Torrent sites are watching on closely, but the public ones tend not to host content. Their users do. Cyber lockers are in a mess, but already recovering. Release sites are continuing, albeit with a reduced number of multiple links to the same content. Perhaps the best test is whether it's now very hard or impossible to find and download popular content. Not even close. From VenezuelaAnalysis.com by Tamara Pearson of VenezuelaAnalysis.com, new Venezuelan social network takes off. Mi Rita, January 25, 2012. The new Venezuela social network, called Plaxed, which allows streams of short posts, 200 characters, as well as event invitation polls and questions, was created as an alternative site so that the files or, per or personal details found on the network, quote, aren't blocked, erased, or followed, unquote, by U.S. laws, said its creator, Cesar Cotes, a systems engineering student. The idea for a website began one and a half years ago, but was on trial a long time. Quote, then the project became a success. We had 10,000 people register in just one day, which collapsed our servers, unquote, Cotes said. Quote, we want a social network specifically for Venezuela, for phones and desktops, and that is completely free. Anyone can create a social network, 
be it for personal use or business, unquote, Cortez said. Plaxed is still under development, based on the freeware status net. It still contains a lot of English, which is gradually being replaced. It has no advertising, and its name, according to Cortez, doesn't mean anything. It's important that Venezuelans gradually take on new technology and create new social networks in order to start to eliminate this dependence that we have on websites made in other countries, which fall under the law of those countries, so they can take the information we put there at any time and do whatever they want with it, unquote. Luigino Obrashi, an information systems graduate, told the Correa del Orinoco. Coach has explained that Venezuelans could take Plax to court should it do something untoward with its information it has because it falls under Venezuelan laws where they could not do that in the case of other social networks like Facebook or Twitter. Social networking in Venezuela has experienced growth in recent years in Venezuela, as Internet usage has risen 40%, while President Hugo Chavez's Twitter account has the most followers in the country. According to a report by Tendencias Digitalis, Venezuela is third in Latin America for social networking media use, with 30% of Internet users registering on Facebook and 21% on Twitter. Last year, the United Nations Institute UNESCO awarded Venezuela's info centers the King Hamid bin Isa Al Khalifa Prize for their work in providing free internet access as well as training, especially to people who were previously excluded due to poverty or location. In 2010, there were 668 info centers, and since then, many more have been built. Other headlines in the news: My Twitter case and thought crime. This is Brigitte Hansdottir's official blog post entry on the Twitter case. The state we're in, Freedom's Road. This is the English podcast from Rio Netherlands International that features the interview with Brigitte Hansdottir. News from HavanaTimes.org, AllGov.com, and DissidentVoice.org, used under arranged permission. News from EFF.org and TorrentFreak.com, used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution license. News from WLCentral.org and PeoplesWorld.org, used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution non-commercial, no derivatives license. News from VenezuelaAnalysis.com is copyleft. Audio interlude. Moment of Clarity Number 112, used under permission of Lee Camp. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Like 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work, as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. 
If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.